Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. If you're here this morning with us and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave to them, get their attention, and they'll get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along with us this morning yourself. Sunday mornings, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And now we today formally enter into the morning of his crucifixion in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 14. And then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. And so from that time, Judas sought opportunity to betray Jesus. Verse 20. And when evening had come, this is the evening before the cross, in the upper room, he sat down with the twelve. And as they were eating, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each one of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus said to him, You have said it. And then verse 47. And while Jesus was speaking, now in the garden of Gethsemane in the morning of the cross, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? And in that hour, Jesus said to the arresting multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him. And fled. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to commune with you uh, deeply and richly as we study this passage this morning. How we love your word, Lord. How we love all that it is intended to communicate to us in our Christian lives. And Lord, we want the fullness of the reasons for which this series of passages is in the Bible to have its important and needed place in each one of our lives, Lord, and for it to do the work in our Christian life and in our relationship with you. 
that it's intended to do. And so we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as a church family, but then also speak to us individually, Lord, from your word, by your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we want to speak about betrayal as we focus upon Judas Iscariot's betrayal of the Lord Jesus in that Garden of Gethsemane on the morning of his crucifixion. First, let's consider the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. When I think of Judas and his betrayal of Jesus, I can't help but thinking of all of his privileges that he had as one of the twelve, one of the twelve apostles of the Lord Jesus. He was one of only twelve in human history that Jesus chose to come and to be with him, to be among those apostles. You think about the fact that he spent three and a half years with Jesus, day and night with the other eleven disciples, and I mean, he enjoyed and access to Jesus and intimacy with Jesus in kind of that physical sense of being with him that only the twelve had experienced. He saw all of the miracles of Jesus with his own two eyes. All of the things that we read in the Gospels, he saw with his own eyes. All of the teaching of Jesus that we read in the Gospels, He heard all of that teaching with his own ears. And Jesus had poured out his time and his teaching and his resources and his love and his very life into this man for three and a half years. A very, very one-sided giving relationship of Jesus toward Judas. And Jesus had shared the deepest things of his heart and his spirit with this man among the twelve. And he had been a witness to Jesus' perfection for three and a half years in a way that only eleven other men in human history had been. And because of this, we recognize that Judas sinned against incredible privilege. He sinned against indescribable light. We notice what he betrayed Jesus for. Thirty crummy, lousy, filthy pieces of silver. Thirty pieces of silver in the Old Testament was the price that the law of Moses required was to be given to the owner of a slave that had been gored by a neighbor's ox. That's the value that after three and a half years he placed Upon the Son of God. In other words, what got Judas and led to his fall, the sin that got him was the sin of covetousness, the ungodly desire for more, the making of material things, the making of money to be the master passion of my life. And for covetousness, For money, he betrayed Christ. It's unimaginable, but it happened. And I think it speaks to all of us of the power of this sin 
called covetousness, which is very, very important, I think, to us as citizens of this country and of the Western world, as we live in this society that tends to minimize the seriousness of the sin of covetousness because we live in a very, very materialistic society. We can think to ourselves, well, yes, murder is a terrible sin. Robbery is a terrible sin. Assault and battery is a terrible sin. And we can go right through the list. And so each of them are. But covetousness, I mean, living supremely for money, I mean, there isn't anything terribly wrong about that. And there isn't anything wrong with earning money and possessing some fit material things. But it crosses a line when it becomes more important to God than God in my life. And it crosses a line and it does all the time in the lives of Christians where I am willing to betray Christ on some level in order to attain to more material things and more money. When I make it a higher priority in my life than Christ, when I come to a place in life where I find that each time I'm forced to choose between being faithful to God and His Word or compromising God's commands in order to make more money, I continually find myself choosing the money over God. That's what Judas did. That's a person whose God is money. Whatever he or she may say about their relationship with God or the appearances that they give, the Bible teaches that we are a servant to what we obey. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of disobedience leading, of obedience rather, leading to righteousness. And Judas teaches us, and it is so very important in our culture, Judas teaches us that a person can miss heaven under the spell of covetousness just as effectively and just as easily as missing it because of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And Jesus is, and because of this, Jesus' warnings against it in the Scripture, against covetousness, are very, very strong. He said to the crowd when someone in the crowd yelled out to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, Man, who made me an arbitrator between you and your brother? And he said then to the crowd, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. He said elsewhere, take heed, no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the Holy Spirit calls the worship of money in material things, where I make that more important in my life than God. The Holy Spirit calls it idolatry and lists it as this covetousness as one of the sins that keeps people from coming to salvation in Christ. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, for this, you know, 
that no fornicator. Oh, yes. You, mm, unclean person. Oh, who preach it, brother. Or covetous man. Wow. Now you've gone to uh, meddling. Or nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. The important thing in all of this for us as Christians is to be very, very careful and to be very, very watchful that we do not have a price. That something that the devil can offer us. That's something that the world could offer us to betray Christ and then have some hope of being successful. And it's not just things. It can be people. It can be relationships. It can be power. It can be position where I could be offered some amount of money, some perk, some benefit, some relationship, some power, some title, some fame. Some reputation. And I'd be willing to sell out Jesus for it and betray him. And I'll tell you something. As we sit here and so often just so easy to listen to it and say, well, it has nothing to do with me. Or, boy, I'm bracing myself for a second offering. But it's very serious business. Happens all of the time. And it's called backsliding, where someone has moved from the place where the Lord alone has the indisputable top place in our lives and then our priorities. Where we can no longer say honestly, as the Apostle Paul declared to the church at Philippi, yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellency Of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. And if that is not the place that he has in our lives as Christians this morning, then it's important for us to repent of our current priorities and life of compromise and lukewarmness and recommit our lives fully unto the Lord. There is a Judas in all of us. And if we are foolish enough, from Adam and Eve, we're all part of the same gene pool. And if we're foolish enough to give that kind of thing a foothold in our life, there's no telling where it can lead. Now, concerning Judas's end physically, we're told later in Matthew's gospel that he will commit suicide by hanging himself. But only after he had returned the money to the same priest that had given it to him and only after he declared to them, I have betrayed innocent blood. The truth of the matter is, as Judas returns those 30 pieces of silver, no matter what a person sells Christ out for, he or she will never enjoy what they sold him out for. Judas has those 30 pieces of silver in his pocket for two full days. Never spends a penny of it. Doesn't get any enjoyment out of the 30 pieces of silver at all. He came to hate. 
the thing that he sold the Lord out for. And where he ends up spiritually is far worse than where he ended up physically in committing suicide. You notice what Jesus said of him in verse 24. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man, speaking of eternity, if he had never been born. Wow! How would you like to hear that from the Lord? And Judas did in that upper room. The fact of the matter is, that this is true of every single person who rejects Christ and dies without putting your faith in him for salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Because to fail to do that is to then enter into, into eternity unsaved and into an eternity of judgment in an eternal lake of fire. And thus, today is the day to put your faith in Christ as God has commanded each of us to do. Now notice the betrayal itself. In verse 15, he approached these terrible, terrible religious leaders who'd spent the better part of three and a half years trying to find a way to silence Jesus and had determined that they were going to kill him in order to do so. And here he is as one of the twelve. He goes to these despicable people at, who lacked an opportunity, lacked a door or, or a, inside, a person on the inside to accomplish something like this. And he goes to them with an offer to betray Jesus into their hands for 30 pieces of silver. And then it, as if that it couldn't get any worse than that, he begins a secret life, secret to everyone but God. As he just secretly now is seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus to them, deliver him over to the desires of his enemies. And I mean, it really required a, a stunning level of hypocrisy and acting on his part. He had to pretend for days that he loved Jesus. He had to pretend that he was just like the other eleven, even as Jesus washed his feet in the upper room. And, he, and his acting was so convincing that when Jesus informed the disciples that there was a betrayer among them, no one knew which of the twelve it might be. No one, uh, no one said, ah, we all know who it is. It's all shifty over there. Judas, I knew right from the beginning you couldn't trust that guy. I mean, you can just, he won't look you in the eye. I'm telling you, something's wrong with that guy. There's none of that. They said to a man, to Jesus, is it I, is it I, is it I? And, a, and just a healthy humility and self-distrust. But nobody knew that it was Judas. Judas was very, very good in this betrayal. And then... And the worst expression in the betrayal itself was his kiss of Jesus in the garden on the morning of Jesus' arrest. 
And we notice that arrest there in beginning in verse 47, when a great multitude came out to arrest Jesus. They're very heavily armed. They're prepared for trouble. And they've been sent. They're kind of a religious police force that was a part of the Jewish religious system of the day, the high priests and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. And so this group is sent out and in order to arrest Jesus. And then Judas breaks himself away from this arresting crowd in verses 48 and 49, and he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. It was a prearranged sign that he had given to them. The priests and the high priests and the Pharisees, they knew who Jesus was. They could pick him out, but not this religious police force. And it was dark, the sun was still coming up, and he said, I'll make it easy for you so you don't arrest the wrong person. I will go to Jesus, and the one that I kiss, you'll know he's the one to arrest. And the Greek word that's used for kiss there, in this particular verse, it means to kiss repeatedly. It means to smother with kisses. He made a great, great demonstration of affection in kissing Jesus in that Betrayal. It's just terrible to be betrayed with a kiss. I mean, how heartbreaking. And yet, it's so often true in life. And Jesus' response to Judas is given in verse 50. He said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Wow. Judas, you were going to do it. It's not just that you betrayed me, but I mean, are you so low that you would betray someone, much less the Son of God, with a kiss while feigning affection for the person? And Jesus then allowed himself, verse 50, to be arrested and then Things got really scary when one of the disciples decided that Jesus needed to be protected on this scene. And we end up with a fisherman with a sword. And he starts to swing the sword. And we know from the other Gospels that it was Peter. And he's not much of a swordsman. All he can do is take off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, He just creates more work for Jesus because, as we're told in one of the other Gospels, Jesus now has to heal the man's ear. And so he's swinging this sword in an attempt to protect Jesus from arrest. And then notice Jesus' rebuke, and it's very significant. His rebuke and his instruction to Peter in verses 52 through 54, he told him to put the sword away. And then in verse 53, he informed Peter of resources that were available to him with just a word. He said, Peter, don't you realize with a single word, I could have 12, I could have 12 legions of angels instantly appear in this garden to defend me if that's what I wanted to do. A legion was 6,000 soldiers, so you're talking about 72,000 angels. Whenever I read this passage, I think back in the Old Testament where but one angel slew 185,000 Syrian troops 
in one night. What's the ability of 72,000 angels come to the protection of Jesus? And I think it's amazing to consider that up in heaven at that moment, that they were grabbing Jesus to arrest him, 72,000 angels pulled their swords out of their sheaths, ready for just a word to be introduced into that garden of Gethsemane and bring an end to the entire scene. No word came. The translation of verse 53 there, and Jesus is speaking to, uh, or, or verse, yeah, verse 53, and Jesus speaking to Peter here is Peter. This scene looks out of control to you, but it is not out of control. Everything is completely under control. All of this is being allowed to happen in order to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Peter, that's what's going on here in this scene. Not what you're seeing uh, with the naked eye alone. We usually make a great mistake as Christians when we become convinced that God is somehow in need of our protection. Or even worse, when we think we need to resort to violence in order to accomplish it. We do not need to defend our God. He is fully capable of defending himself. We need a God who is not only able to defend himself, but also to defend and protect us. And that's precisely the God that we have in the God of the Bible. When a religion or a religious institution feels that they must artificially protect their God, that is always a confession of the weakness of their God or of their religion. Classic example today is the Greek Orthodox Church, not in Modesto, but in Greece, where they have worked to enact a law there which makes it against the law for even a Christian to proselytize or to share the gospel and the need to be born again in Greece. As a Christian, if you're visiting Greece on some kind of a tour and you share the gospel with someone, you can end up arrested and it happens all of the time and it will take the American embassy to get you unarrested and out of that country as fast as they can get you out of that country. And why would a religious sect that claims to be Christian be behind any law that prohibits the sharing of the gospel. They do it because they don't want any competition to their religion in Greece. They don't feel that their religious system can stand up to the rigors of a challenge, and thus it must be artificially protected in this way. And often, I often think of Islam in this regard where many of their leaders call for the death of anyone who would draw a picture of Muhammad or the death of anyone who would burn the Quran. And they feel that 
Muhammad and they feel that Allah must be artificially protected in this way. Why is it that Christians don't call for the death of anyone or why is it that we don't riot in the streets because someone has blasphemed our God or because they've publicly burned the Bible on the street? It's because we realize that if someone burns a Bible, it's no reflection at all upon our God. Nor is it a reflection in any way upon us, but it's a reflection solely upon them. And we realize that our God does not need to be artificially protected because he's big enough to defend himself. And if we tried to artificially protect him, it would make him look smaller than he actually is. It would discredit him and his reputation. Now, no Christian should ever burn a Koran. And the reason is, is because we represent Christ supremely. A person may be tempted to do it on First Amendment rights as a citizen of the United States of America. But as Christians, we represent Christ first and foremost. And no one can possibly believe that if Jesus were here today, that in the course of his three and a half years of public ministry, that he would ever make it a point to burn a Koran. The best way to get rid of darkness in a dark room is not to try and beat it out by waving a bat around in the room. The best way to relieve that room of darkness is to just simply turn on the light. We're the light of the world, the Bible says. And as we just simply live the best Christian life that we know how to live, things will take care of themselves. The Word of God, the Bible speaks of it as a light and as a lamp, speaks of it as a, as a, uh, in the, in the context uh, of light. And it will expose as we just take the word out into the culture publicly and privately in conversation, in preaching, in evangelism. It will by itself expose what's darkness in the world. Whether the darkness is religious and religion can be very dark or the, or the darkness is secular or non-religious. Our weapons in the spiritual warfare that we're involved in today are love and truth. And I'll tell you, better than burning a book is to expose its error and to refute it with the truth of God's word. Spoken in love. That's the powerful way to handle what is incorrect and error. Now notice Jesus' rebuke of the crowd in verses 55 and 56. He rebukes their cowardice and their hypocrisy. I mean, he could have just let it go that he'd be arrested and continue on and with things. But he, he takes the time. He wants to bring conviction to their lives over what it is that they've engaged in. How many of them later turned to him? 
as a result of the conviction of his words. We'll never know, not this side of heaven anyway. I was out in the temple. You could have arrested me in broad daylight while I was teaching any time you wanted to do it. But you guys have to do this sneaky thing and come in and get me in the morning before the city is awake and while it's still dark. You don't want to perform this act publicly that it says something about you. Now, in terms of an application of this passage this morning, I think that betrayal is one of the hardest and the most bitter experiences that we experience in life. When someone close to us, someone who knows us very, very intimately and well, only because we trusted them and exposed ourselves to them in a deep way because of that trust. And then to have them turn on us and use all of that knowledge against us and even to seek to destroy us. And it happens all of the time. And marriages, a one-sided marriage, where one person does all of the giving and all of the giving and all of the giving for six months, for three and a half years, for ten years, for twenty years, for forty years. And then one day, that other person just walks out on them. It happens to parents and the raising of their children can happen to a child at the hands of their parents. It can happen in the hands of a relative or a co-worker or a close friend or another Christian. It can happen in Christian service, those that we serve the Lord with. And you can be completely innocent as Jesus was and still suffer betrayal in this world no one is immune from it. But one of the lessons of the passage, the, but the lesson of the passage isn't that Jesus experienced betrayal in his life and in his ministry, and so will we. That's not the greatest lesson. The greatest lesson is to notice then how Jesus handled the betrayal. And how he processed it, processed it so that we might learn from him and do the same. And behind Jesus' response to Judas in that upper room and his response to Peter in that garden of Gethsemane was the same thing. There was within Jesus the consciousness that despite the unfairness and the pain of this betrayal, everything was under control. It was under God's control and that God would have the final say in the situation and his and he and he alone would have that final say. He spoke to Judas in verse 24. The son of man indeed goes just as it was written of him to Peter. He said, how then, verse 54, could the scriptures be fulfilled that it? 
it must happen thus. He recognized this is all for all of the outward circumstances, for all of the Judas betrayest thou me with a kiss, for all of the pain, for all of the messiness of it. That in the big picture of what was happening, that God's word would have the final say in the situation and that he would work it together for good. Now the question is, will you and I believe that about our situation, about our betrayal, that your situation is under God's control, and that he'll make sure that his word, not some Judas, but that his word will have the final say in your situation and that he's big enough to even work it together for good. And you may think God has so many resources to use to make this wrong right. Why doesn't he do it? For one reason alone. What he is up to is far superior to your plan. But it's going to take a little time for you to see that. And the question is, will you give him that time? And while you do, you should rest in the knowledge that if God can overwhelm the betrayal of Judas against the Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane, and make it serve his purposes, then he is able to do that same thing in your life and in your situation. Nothing is out of control related to your life. One final warning and one final encouragement Never, ever come down as a Christian to the level of some Judas, some betrayer. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay word for word, information for information, gossip for gossip, attack for attack. Jesus refused to pay repay evil for evil and I'm so glad he didn't come down to the level of Judas I would want to cut it out of my Bible if he did that Jesus knew Judas inside and out and he could have exposed him and shamed him terribly but he didn't He remained very, very gracious toward Judas, even offering him the sop of honor, the dipped bread of honor that was presented to the guest of honor at that meal in that upper room. Don't ever become a betrayer while fighting a betrayer. It's beneath you. It's beneath the spirit. Who lives inside of you. It's beneath the Lord who lives inside of us and whose reputation is at stake. 
based upon we, how we handle these seasons of betrayal. The statement that Jesus made concerning Judas there in verse 24 about the fact that it would have been good for the man that was betraying him is if he had not been born. And as I said, that is true of every single person who fails to put their trust in Jesus for salvation and the forgiveness of sin. Because that will land you on the wrong side of eternity and into a judgment that you do not want to go into. And it is a righteous judgment, that eternal lake of fire. Today's the day for you to be saved, to repent of your sin, to turn away from it and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and to put your faith in his death upon the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and to ask him into your life this morning to become your Lord and to become your Savior. Can you imagine missing heaven for 30 dirty, lousy, filthy, crummy, nothing pieces of silver. And Judas did. You say it would have been better if it was a million dollars. No. Maybe from the vantage point of earth, but not from the vantage point of heaven. Jesus said, and he's the one that speaks wise to all of this. He said, what shall it profit a man? If he gains the entire world and loses his own soul. Jesus is saying that if a person sold him out and remained unsaved all of his life because the world, all of its wealth and all of its power was turned over to him, that even that person making that transaction does not understand the value of his soul and the importance of salvation and the length of eternity. Even if we were to sell our soul for all of the world, Jesus said it would be a terrible transaction. So today's the day to be saved. And there's going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they're going to have a badge on that says purse. You can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God right here this morning. It's not about church. It's not about knowing a ton about the Bible. It's not about hanging around religious people. Judas did all of that and more off the graph. And he wasn't saved. Are you born again? Has there been a moment in time in your life where you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and that faith has then translated into a changed life? And if that isn't happened, then this morning you need to be born again. And God would love to do it. The Bible says that he's not willing that any should perish. That's his heart. Now it's up to me with what I will do with my soul. But he has made salvation available and made it a free gift so that none of us would perish. Let's stand together and we'll pray.